Hey guys, Anthony here, and I just wanted to give you a big biohack thank you for listening. I'm so humbled and grateful that you're spending some of your day with me and the Biohacking Secrets Show. And if you get any value from this episode, or you've gotten value from previous episodes, it would mean the world if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this episode with your friends, family members, and coworkers on social media. That way we can continue to spread this information and positively impact as many lives as possible. And it's also how our podcast gets discovered by more people. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show. This is your life and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are breakfast. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. What's up, biohackers? Anthony here with another special edition storytime episode of the Biohacking Secret Show. And uh, I wanted to share something cool with you guys. This isn't a sponsor for the show, but it's a company that I really love. And the reason that I want to share it with you guys is because, as you've probably noticed, we have many supply chain issues already at play, uh, shortages in grocery stores, uh, the prices of vehicles, cars, equipment is going up. Um, and now with the recent amount of uh, pilots and people that are truck drivers, people driving cargo ships that have refused the vaccine, um, it's going to only amplify that. Then when you take into account on like a macroeconomic level, the fact that we've been pumping trillions and trillions of dollars of paper money into the economy, uh, what we're looking at is at a minimum a recession possibly a depression and I'm not saying that to make you depressed just you know when you when you kind of look at it on paper a lot of the variables that are at play right now would at least justify a pretty strong recession um, or a depression but there are ways to protect your wealth and I'm not talking about digital currency <laughs> or cryptocurrency um, I'm talking about gold and silver. And one of my favorite companies that I purchase all of my gold and silver from is Gainesville Coins. That's G-A-I-N-E-S-V-I-L-L-E coins.com. And they have, um, you know, 99.99% pure silver. You can get silver American eagles. You can get Canadian maples. Um the value of silver is that it's you can get more of it. It's more affordable. Um, it's probably undervalued when you compare it to like gold and palladium and other metals. Um, but you know, in, in, and it's easier to transact with, right? Because like a, a piece of silver is going to be anywhere from like twenty-two to thirty bucks at least right now. Whereas like the same size gold coin might be seventeen hundred to. $2,000 or more. So if you've got a ton of money, then you probably want to go more with gold and bullion or gold coins and um, and then just get a smaller amount of silver for transacting and that sort of thing. Or if, uh, if you don't have a lot of money to be able to invest, then silver might be a great place to start. 
and I get all my gold and silver on Gainesville coins. Again, they're not a sponsor, uh, but they do phenomenal work, and I've used them a lot over the years. And I mention that because um, we're doing something really fun that you may have heard mentioned on the last episode, but we're um, opening up uh, my mailbox to letters from you guys. And in these letters, you can share uh, your biohacking stories, uh, things that have helped you a lot on your journey, stuff that you've learned from the Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus, the content that we create, the Biohacking Secrets show, uh, anything like that. And you can even ask me questions that you would like to have answered. Um, and these can be typed or handwritten letters. Handwritten is even better if I can read your handwriting. Um and one of the things that people are doing is if you've gotten any value from the stuff that, that we put out there, um, you can include donations and you can decide what type of, of you know, what <laughs> you would like to contribute. There's no obligation, even just, just taking the time to write in and share something that's uplifting and fun and positive uh, is, you know, is value in and of itself. But if you want to include some coins from Gainesville coins. I love silver. I love gold, uh, even copper, all great. And, um, yeah. And if you, if you guys have questions, that's the way to do it. So, um, if you want to write this down, that is, you can, you can address it to me or biohacking secrets and it's PO box seven, one, five, one Deerfield, Illinois, six, zero, zero, one, five PO box seven, one, five, one Deerfield, Illinois, six, zero, zero, one five. And um, if you prefer to make a digital donation and send your question in that way, or just, you know, um, any, any bit about like, you know, what's what's impacted you or what you found helpful or anything that you'd like to share, uh, you can do that digitally at entropystream.live slash biohacking secrets. That's E-N-T-R-O-P-Y-S-T-R-E-A-M dot live slash biohacking secrets. And you just choose send paid chat and then you can include whatever your message is, your uh question that you'd like help with. And I thought that would be a cool way for us to kind of build community. And it's also a way that you can get your official biohacker name. So um, whether that's like, you know, biohacker Anthony or biohacker Jessica or Spartan biohacker, whatever it is uh, that you would like to be verified as, uh, those letters are how you get your official biohacker name. And it's just going to be a fun way for all of us to interact and build this community even more. So um, having said all of that, yeah, check out Gainesville Coins, G-A-I-N-E-S-V-I-L-L-E-C-O-I-N-S. And um, feel free to include any of that in your letters if you feel so inspired and have gotten value from the stuff that we do. And then without further ado, let's dive in to today's special edition storytime episode of the Biohacking Secret Show. And what we'll do is I'll share this excerpt from a book that uh, I enjoy and I'm reading right now. And then if you stick around to the end, I'll let you know what it is uh, so that if you would like, you can pick up a copy and continue reading yourself. So um, we're going to kick it off with two cool quotes and um, dive right in. Here we go. The first quote is from Ayn Rand. The hardest thing to explain is the glaringly evident 
which everybody has decided not to see. Next quote. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Martin Luther King, New York. Oh, (laughs) so the quote's from Martin Luther King, and then the book starts, and the setting is New York, April 2021. This is a book that never should have been written. To start, much of what's described in the following pages was entirely preventable. As you read it, you'll recognize the crucial junctures where a different decision could have changed the path of human history and saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Really though, this book never should have been written because I never should have written it. In my nearly four decades on this planet, I've hardly ever had cause to question the medical establishment. I followed the recommendations of the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and rolled my eyes at anti-vaxxers, in quotes. As it became more of a political statement to do so, I could say without hesitation that I believed science, and women for that matter. I'd never ever voted Republican. In short, when the first pandemic video began to make its way onto my social media feed, I averted my eyes and kept on scrolling. I was not sympathetic to its worldview. At least, that's what I thought. For some of you reading, That may be reason enough to ignore the rest of what I have to say. The world has become so politicized and divided. Certain words and phrases act as triggers that slam shut the door to any kind of open conversation or critical inquiry. Vaccine is one of them. Democrat or Republican, too. Yes, we can. Make America great again. Guns. Science, Black Lives Matter, Believe All Women, Blue Lives Matter, Not My President, Crooked, Rigged, Stolen, Liar. Is there anyone left reading this who hasn't felt some kind of reaction by now? Despite the discord in our nation, however, underneath all of the words that we use to try to make sense of our world, there is still a bedrock of unassailable facts, and I don't mean alternative ones. As a lifelong investigative journalist, it's been my passion and my duty to uncover them, especially when someone is invested in keeping them out of sight. Because journalist, news, and facts can be trigger terms these days. You should know that I've never been a devoted member of what one might call mainstream media on either side of the aisle. My books are available at your local store, and you've probably seen my byline on the front page of your paper. Otherwise, I've managed to stay relatively independent, beholden to no one at this point in my career. My latest investigations have remained largely unclouded by the pressures of money, politics, and corporate powers that be. My motto is the old George Orwell yarn, quote, journalism is printing what someone else does not want published. Everything else is public relations, end quote. For that reason, 
my journalistic spidey sense began to tingle as the pandemic rolled on throughout 2020. The instances of obvious doublespeak, backtracking, and about faces when it came to the truth, in quotes, were piling up. Knowing, in some cases personally, the reporters at other media outlets, I was painfully aware that they were mostly too lazy to do anything other than regurgitate what they were seeing on Twitter or the newswires. So I started to do my own research in the hopes of understanding why the world seemed to be crumbling around us. Plandemic inevitably was part of my research. Initially, just as a cultural artifact that I thought it would be easy to disprove. I thought it would be the embodiment of the anti-truth, anti-science, highly politicized reaction to the pandemic. As I went down the rabbit hole, though, I realized that wasn't the case. I struggled to find anything about which the pandemic team had been flat out wrong. In reading other critics' takedowns, I read between the lines and saw that while they weren't happy with its message, they didn't even provide any evidence to suggest that the claims in the film were lies. I was so curious, how did the filmmakers behind Plandemic, both part one and the second release, Plandemic Indoctrination, create a movie that was both so explosively controversial and so doggedly straightforward? Why did it become such a cultural phenomenon And what does that say about the human experience of the COVID-19 pandemic? I reached out to them to find out. If you've picked up this book, you probably think you know the answer, and you probably have an opinion of the film itself, even if you've never watched it. Either way, and no matter what you think, my request to everyone reading this is the same. Please try to keep an open mind and remain aware of when that door in your mind is starting to swing shut because you're triggered. COVID-19 has been the most consequential experience of most of our lives. We owe it to ourselves, to the millions who have died from it, and to the generations to come to try and figure out what happened, and if it really had to happen that way. My opinion, it didn't. With lockdowns rolling back and case rates dropping, It may be tempting to push forward and forget that this whole ordeal happened, unless we're willing to confront the truth of what we've all experienced. The horrors of the last year won't be behind us. They'll only be beginning. Am I confident that we can learn from this massive human tragedy and move into a better era? I'm not so sure. That's why you won't find my name on the cover or inside the pages of this book. It's not because I'm not willing to stand behind what I've reported and written. I do, and I do so proudly. The reason that I'm writing anonymously, at least for this edition, is that I'm not willing to sacrifice my safety, my career, and my family over other people's projections. There are people who will read this book soberly and judge it on the merit of its factual evidence and arguments. There are other people, however, who are probably already writing up their Amazon review of the book now after reading just a few pages, one star or five star, it doesn't matter. I'm not willing to put myself out there to be judged by people who are judging me based on something other than the facts. Why bother writing the book at all then? 
I'm not ready to give up on the power of one human sharing a story with another. It's how this great international society started, and it's ultimately what we'll have to come back to if we have any shot at healing the divides in our nation and our world. So as you read through this book, I beg you to listen with your heart and with your mind. If you walk away feeling exactly the same way you do right now about COVID-19, and you feel that you haven't learned anything new or changed your perspective one bit, then by all means, write that one-star review. However, if you find yourself changed by the time you read the final page, please don't keep it to yourself. Tell this story to someone else. It's a story of tragedy, conspiracy, and death, but also of a lot of hope, joy, and optimism for the possibilities of the human experience. That story starts now. Chapter one, the origins. I'm a firm believer in the people. If given the truth, they can be dispended upon to meet any national crisis. The great point is to bring them the real facts. Abraham Lincoln. All right, I'm going to butcher this, but the city is, I believe, Zhao Hongsan, China, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, December 2019. Researchers in full hazard gear moved quietly beneath the fluorescent lights of the giant concrete building that housed the Wuhan Institute of Virology. White spacesuits, giant green gloves, white plastic boots, like a child would wear for puddle jumping. Overall, the effect would have been comical if the lab hadn't been filmed, filled with deadly pathogens. The researchers were used to the air of danger that, that pervaded the facility. Just one of the invisible particles that they handled every day could wipe out an entire city. Incidentally, there was a city of 11 million people surrounding them. The, respons the responsibility was heavy, and to some, they weren't up to the job. The world had heard of SARS in the early 2000s. In 2012, there was the report of another coronavirus outbreak, this one called MERS, or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. But while the world was distracted by a virus associated with camels, few knew that a potentially deadly SARS strain had been detected in China in 2013. This pathogen, codenamed WIV-1, and named for the Wuhan Institute of Virology, attracted little attention except from the U.S. and Chinese researchers funded by the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, or the NIAID, and Anthony Fauci. By 2015, Dr. Ralph Barrick of the University of North Carolina and Dr. Zhang Li Shi of Wuhan had performed research that had concluded ominously that the Wuhan coronavirus was, quote, poised for human emergence, end quote. If it was going to happen anywhere, Wuhan seemed a likely place. As early as 2016, American researchers found that China was suffering from, quote, a shortage of officials, experts, and scientists who specialize in laboratory biosafety, end quote. The greatest concern was that the lab researchers who were accidentally infected through lax safety protocol could then inadvertently spread rare diseases throughout their community. Still, 
that nation's leaders seemed intent on pressing forward with ever more biomedical research. When the Wuhan Institute of Virology first officially opened in 2017, <coughs> excuse me, oh, COVID, <laughs> scientists around the world warned that operations at the $44 million lab were a recipe for disaster. The SARS virus had escaped from a major lab in Beijing multiple times, and despite the government's promises of unparalleled safety in Wuhan, the risk to the rest of the world was obvious. Wuhan would be home to more than 1,500 virus strains. Could a deadly virus escape right under the noses of the researchers? Early indications were not good. According to the U.S. State Department, American embassy officials in Beijing recorded at least two official warnings about the lab's insufficient safety measures in early 2018. However, it wasn't just the Americans raising alarm. Although Chinese, although Chinese media have historically been slow to admit the failure of government projects, even the propagandistic propagandistic, it sounds like a shaggy song, shaggy bombastic, propagandistic, national press reported that security inspections had discovered several incidents and accidents in, at the lab in Wuhan. One security review in particular concluded that the lab had failed to meet national standards in several categories, especially as it concerned the handling of the bats that had been captured for study of the coronaviruses they carry. Researchers admitted to investigators that there had been bat attacks that left them splattered with bat blood or bat urine on their skin. Yummy. That kind of bat-to-human contact was exactly the kind of interaction that the outside world feared. Even a less noticeable bat interaction with another lab animal could cause a chain reaction of infection, one that could potentially cripple the entire world. And as I read this, the one, the one thing throughout all of this that I'm trying to wrap my head around is we know that a significant portion of the symptoms that people are experiencing and attributing to the quote-unquote coronavirus are due to radiation poisoning. That's a fact. There's been books written on it. It's happened every time there's been a big change in our electromagnetic environment. If you guys are interested in that, you can check out The Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Fistenberg. You can check out, out Dr. Thomas Cowan's book, The Contagion Myth. Um, I'm interested in this narrative. The, the, the question in my mind is, you know, how much of what's taking place is, in fact, electrical radiation poisoning? Or is there an actual outbreak from a lab you know what I mean? It's just, it's interesting. I don't know. I'm not going to claim to know, but I'm going to share it with you guys and let you decide. And then at the end, you'll, um, I'll tell you what this is from. There are a couple things that make Lyme disease and more specifically the spirochete bacteria, Borrelia burgdorferi, particularly hard to treat. The first is that it's known as the great imitator, meaning that it mimics the symptoms of 200 other conditions. So a lot of times people think they've got thyroid disorder or adrenal problems or chronic fatigue or a whole host of other stuff going on, rheumatoid arthritis, when in reality they have a low-level chronic bacterial infection. The testing is notorious for producing false negatives. So a lot of people will get a Lyme test that only has maybe a 30% uh, accuracy level 
and they'll get a negative test result and then they'll go looking elsewhere and spend years or even decades going down the wrong path. And last but not least, the bacteria has this spirochete form, which means it's able to bury in our central nervous system, our brain, our connective tissue, and a lot of the most effective commonly known treatments for Lyme disease like blood ozone, ultraviolet blood radiation, IV light therapy combined with uh, intravenous um, vitamins, and then you have the herbal protocols like the Bunner protocol, the Cowden protocol, etc. A lot of times these get people results for a few months or even a few years, but they're unable to effectively get into the connective tissue and the central nervous system and get rid of the spirochete bacteria that are kind of hibernating there. And then it comes back. Well, Clinic St. George in Bad Eibling, Germany has developed a breakthrough treatment that they discovered almost on accident while helping people with cancer. It's called extreme whole body hyperthermia. And based on the 1927 Nobel Prize, they found that when you heat the body up in a safe and controlled medically supervised setting to 107 degrees for a period of two hours and maintain it there, you're able to wipe out uh, the Borrelia bacteria. And then when you follow it up with intravenous laser therapy and IV riboflavin, you're able to knock out the co-infections like Bartonella and Babesia that otherwise are able to maintain a foothold because you've got the Lyme bacteria, the Borrelia, suppressing the immune system. So if you or someone you know is dealing with cancer or Lyme disease, the St. George Clinic in Bad Eibling, Germany has helped over 25,000 people with cancer and now over 2,500 people with Lyme disease. And it's the most effective treatment modality that I'm aware of for helping with chronic Lyme, especially if you've tried a lot of the other things out there. And if you want more information, you can go online to their website, which is Clinic St. George. You can just Google that. That's probably the easiest way to find it. But their website, I'll spell it out for you. It's K-L-I-N-I-K-S-T-G-E-O-R-G.de slash E-N slash. That'll give it to you in English. And it's Clinic St. George in Bad Eibling, A-I-B-L-I-N-G, Germany. And I just did a podcast with their medical director, Dr. Dows. It's, I believe, episode 215 of the Biohacking Secrets show. So check that out if you are interested. And please pass this along to anyone who may benefit from it. All right. Thank you. Back to the episode. So still, in the face of a moratorium, making much of that kind of research off limits in the U.S., the National Institutes of Health continued to funnel money to Wuhan to study coronaviruses in bats. More alarming, the study was also the, the, the study also funded research into mechanisms that would make bat-derived coronavirus deadlier to humans. The NIH grants to the EcoHealth Alliance, which funded research in Wuhan, would continue up through April 2020. This wasn't random. 
1999, the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases, the NIAID, under the leadership of, you guessed it, Dr. Anthony Fauci, began funding research into recombinant coronaviruses. Their specific aim was to create, quote, infectious, replication-defective coronaviruses, end quote. In short, they sought to use coronavirus as a technology that could infect humans without a high risk of transmission. This work, done at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, resulted in U.S. patent 72793227, quote, methods for producing recombinant coronavirus, end quote, filed in 2002 before severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, existed. Research into coronavirus had been heavily funded as a means to harness the highly manipulatable virus for several potential applications in both medicine and bioterrorism. In the United States, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, jumped to file patents on the gene sequence of the coronavirus itself. Although naturally occurring phenomena cannot be patented, any scientific procedure used to study one can. Patenting coronavirus meant that the CDC could control future study and future vaccines. Based on the number of coronavirus patents that arose in the late 1990s, they foresaw a busy and potentially profitable future for that viral family. All that was likely swirling in the mind of lab director Wang Yanyi in December 2019. An unexplained wildfire of pneumonia had been spreading across the Wuhan metropolitan area for weeks, and doctors had traced it all back to a coronavirus. Now, here's where I need to interject because we know that in December of 2019, that's when they rolled out 5G in Wuhan. So take some of this with a grain of salt. Little suspicious, if you ask me, in my humble opinion. Yan Yi and his team had been tasked with finding out if the coronavirus was a long-buried strain that had resurfaced or if it could be something new and therefore much more dangerous. The results of their initial research were disturbing. This virus did have 96% genetic similarity to a strain of coronavirus that had been isolated from bats nearly 20 years before. However, beyond that, it appeared to be something entirely novel. Samples of the virus repeatedly collected from patients arrived in Wuhan on December 30th, 2019, and the lab's scientists had reported the viral genome sequence by January 2nd, 2020. Now, here's what else is interesting. They still have not satisfied Koch's postulates, K-O-C-H, Koch's postulates for COVID-19. Now, this is the scientific methodology, the very scientific method that is required in order to prove that a virus is pathogenic, meaning that, that to prove that a virus not only exists, but is causing the disease that people believe it is causing, that scientists believe it is causing. That still hasn't been done. So I can't speak to whether or not this, the, the, the viral genome of 
you know, this this sequence that they said was mapped on January 2nd, 2020. I can't speak onto that validity, but I know they ain't done shit with coronavirus. Um, although that, you know, it may sound surprising. There's no scientific method that's that's isolated and proved uh, infectious causation. And even the PCR test is garbage. Kerry um, Mullis, the man who invented the PCR test, publicly said, do not use it for this. And as I've mentioned in another uh, episode, he was murdered about seven months before the uh, pandemic broke out. The news of the, no- the novel coronavirus was reported to the World Health Organization on January 11th. According to a Stat News Report article released on January 11th, Chinese national media reported the first official death from the virus. On July 9th, 2021, Organic Consumers Association reported that Dr. Ralph Barrick, the NIAID, and Moderna entered into a material transfer agreement to start making a new coronavirus vaccine on December 12th, weeks before the pathogen was isolated. Lab director Yan Yi and the rest of the world now knew what they were dealing with. But where did it come from and how did it start infecting humans? That was probably a less important question than this one. Was it too late to stop it. I'm going to be honest, guys. I'm enjoying this a little bit. There's a part of me, it feels a little bit like propaganda. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I we're, we're very much aware that the 5G, like the 5G towers, the, the, the power levels that they're increasing on our cell phones, the smart meters that they're changing out on all of our homes and condominiums and apartments, um, all of this technology is part of a control grid. You know, even the Internet of Things, it's it's the tracking and listening to everything. And they need the 5G technology in order to be able to do that. Um, there's even like Bluetooth discovery apps that people are, are saying can identify when um, someone has been vaccinated. It, it's act, they're actually showing up on the Bluetooth discovery app. Um I can't help but feel like a little bit of this book is just to push the infectious causation and and sort of like a magician trick, distract from the fact that that electrical radiation from all this technology makes people sick, and there are thousands of studies proving it. Um, I'm going to read a little bit more, but if if it continues to feel like propaganda, we're gonna we're gonna bounce. Um, yeah, okay. The sleepy mountain town of Ojai, California couldn't be further away from a Chinese coronavirus research lab. About an hour and a half up the road from Los Angeles, Ojai is far removed as well from the hustle and bustle of Hollywood. Getting there involves a slow and steady journey up a winding mountain road, a drive that requires a literal change of pace. As you motor through the natural arches of century-old trees, sparkling lakes pop out from behind the bends. Charming farmhouses are nestled in the greenery. Then, suddenly, there's a small town seemingly dropped into the forest out of nowhere. Spanish-style adobe buildings with wooden signs line the one narrow thoroughfare of commerce in the city. Vegan restaurants live happily alongside coffee shops, tax preparation firms, lawyers, and design studios. Tucked away on the small side street, 
at the top floor of a dark and nondescript commercial building was the office of Elevate Productions. Elevate was the brainchild of Mickey Willis, his wife, producer Nadia Salamanca, and an international team of collaborators. The road to its creation was a rocky one for Mickey, who experienced the deaths of his brother and mother just a few years before coincidentally finding himself at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Although his experiences were ones that might have turned another man bitter, Mickey ultimately found a deep sense of connection and meaning in the experiences. Frustrated that the news media did not seem interested in telling the positive stories of humans working together in 9-11 rescue efforts, focused as they were on the tales of tragedy and terror, Mickey abandoned a promising career as a hotshot Hollywood director to tell stories about the good in life and to encourage others to do the same. Quote, before my experience at the World Trade Center, I was driven to obtain all the material fetishes that we've been wired to see as symbols of success. All that stuff they strive for in Hollywood, end quote, Mickey told me in an interview. But there I was, standing on the rubble of what was an international symbol of power just before me, watching exotic cars being flipped and crushed by rescue vehicles while body parts lay scattered around me. Suddenly, my life goals felt insignificant. He continued, it was, a, it was a snap to grid moment for me. I could no longer do the work I was doing before. I was living someone else's dream. If I was going to remain in the business, I'd have to be involved in something more meaningful. In 2005, that declaration took the shape of what would come to be called the Elevate Film Festival. It was more of a guerrilla filmmaking competition than a traditional film festival, Mickey explained. The object of the game was to challenge filmmakers from around the world to produce a short film in a micro amount of time. We gave each filmmaker a small budget, then sent them out into the world to find stories that would lift the human spirit. Tired of all the negative news and depressing narratives, our goal was to inspire artists and storytellers to focus on the upside of humanity all of the innovators, heroes, and great things happening around the world. What started as a small gathering in a local yoga studio rapidly attracted audiences of up to 6,000 people, filling arenas such as LA's Nokia Theater. As a director, as director of the festival, Mickey was tasked with developing each film assignment. One such film assignment was a documentary about urban farmers. Most of the farmers were immigrants, some legal, some not and they had developed a beautiful garden right in the middle of the most in, one of the most industrial areas of south-central Los Angeles. They turned a concrete jungle into an incredible oasis where they were growing and selling organic food to benefit the entire community, he explained. Just as the gardens were in full bloom, the owner of the land, a real estate mogul, decided to sell the entire block. We created a short film titled South Central Farmers, then blasted it out to help raise awareness. Overnight, media and thousands of people showed up to stand in solidarity with the farmers and families who relied on the gardens to survive. It was my first experience of producing a piece of media that caused people to take right action. It lit a fire in me, Mickey explained. I began to pay attention to things that I had always avoided, he continued, like politics. Though I was deep in my 30s, 
I had never voted. Barack Obama was the first candidate to inspire me enough to take that leap. Me too, coincidentally, and uh, really wish I hadn't. <laughs> All right. I was so enamored by his hypnotic presence that I teared up the night he was sworn in. I was certain that this beautiful family would deliver on his promise of hope and change. By the end of his first term, it was clear that he was like all the rest. There you go, Mickey. I'm glad he sees it. <laughs> a, politi a politician. Um, yeah, okay. That he was like all the rest. A politician. I didn't think I'd ever vote again. Yeah, I didn't either. And I won't ever again. I won't ever participate in that system. Um, then along came Bernie Sanders. People who I love and trust swore that he was different, Mickey said. They sent links to videos of Bernie dating back decades. His message was consistent. He took me back to my childhood. He spoke about single mothers and how those on the bottom need to be lifted up. I remember thinking, I wish we had him when I was a child. All right. I feel like this has lost a little bit of, his, of, of its luster, but to give you guys an idea of what else, the chapters, chapter one, the origins, chapter two, pandemic one, chapter three, debunking the debunkers, chapter four, pandemic two, chapter five, the gatekeepers, chapter six, the dress rehearsal, chapter seven, gates of hell, chapter eight, fact checking the fact checkers, Chapter nine, ending where it began. Um, this does get going a little bit further, but I didn't want to skip around because I feel like then you can lose context. And uh, this book, for those of you guys that have enjoyed any parts of it, is Plandemic, 100% uh, censored, 0% debunked. Fear is the virus. Truth is the cure. Edited and co-authored by Mickey Willis, M-I-K-K-I-W-I-L-L-I-S. So again, that book is Plandemic, and it's by Mickey Willis, M-I-K-K-I-W-I-L-L-I-S. If you guys got value from this, you want to share it with some people, uh, please do so. Send it to them, and uh, make sure that you subscribe to the Biohacking Secrets Show wherever you listen to podcasts, and help get the word out there. Appreciate you guys so much. If you want to send in a letter or a donation or both, you can do that. Uh, send it to either Anthony DiClemente or Biohacking Secrets, PO Box seven one five one, Deerfield, Illinois six zero zero one five. And uh, if you want to get verified with your official biohacker name, that's the way to do it. Appreciate you guys listening so much. And until next time, I'm Anthony DiClemente signing off. What's up, guys? Anthony here. And one of my favorite things to do is helping men and women like you feel what it's like living life with the body you've always wanted and all day energy that starts the moment you wake up and doesn't quit. Over the past decade, we've created a proprietary health assessment that helps me to identify the unique toxicities and deficiencies that are holding you back from the life that you deserve. And what we've discovered in doing this now with thousands of CEOs, executives, professional athletes, businessmen, Hollywood celebs, and entrepreneurs is that there is always room for improvement and optimization. So if you're looking for help with this stuff and you'd like to see if you're a fit to work with me one-on-one, -on -one, this program is usually full year-round with a waiting list, but we just had a few spots open up. 
And I wanted to make this available to the listeners of the Biohacking Secrets show first. So what you want to do if you want to apply is head over to biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching. That's www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching, C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G. Fill out the short application form. And if you're pre-approved, you'll be given the opportunity to book a time to connect with someone on our team and see if it's a fit. Thank you so much for being a part of this community. I look forward to potentially going on this journey together. 